Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ahí va a llegar el gol del Arsenal Ophil. Marca Mesut Ophil. Pasó Gendusi. Pepe. Extra. Hello and welcome to another Arsecast Extra, as always, with James from Gunnar Blog. James, good morning to you. Well, good morning-ish. Morning, morning, morning. Bad, bad morning. Badly mm. morning. Badly morning. I, I, I tell you what, it says something about the state of things at Arsenal that we can't even make this podcast work so I know. Far. Um, people obviously will third have attempt. no... Yeah, third attempt, and who knows what's going to happen. We're having all kinds of recording issues, um, sound quality problems and, and everything else. So, uh, yeah, maybe it's symptomatic or emblematic of what's going on at Arsenal this morning. But uh, for the third time, I'm going to pretend like it's the first time I've asked you this question because we've managed to get about <laughs> two minutes in in each one before we, before we encounter these issues. Yeah, how are you feeling this morning? Because, um, as I've already told you twice, <laughs> but three times now for the sake of the start mm. of this podcast that people are only hearing for the first time, I had a very restless night because I had to consider how to to make sense of and, and write about what happened yesterday at the Emirates with the, the football, with the Xhaka thing, with the, the reaction to it, with his reaction to it, or what it means. You know, on and off the pitch, um, the repercussions for him, the repercussions for the club, the manager, the other players. You know, there's a lot going on and and um, tied into the whole atmosphere, the whole, the whole sort of mood around the club right now. I, I have to admit, I'm feeling, you know, a bit melancholy by the whole thing. Yeah, I, I completely understand that. I... Uh woke up this morning sort of feeling almost like what happened yesterday at the Emirates Stadium was a bit of a bad dream. That's how it seemed to me. There was something kind of surreal about it and, and waking up and you know scrolling through social media and reading the headlines on various websites, sorry, various websites, it sort of just comes home to you, wow, that did all happen, you know, particularly that Shaka incident. It's so... Um, kind of unprecedented the scale of it and what we saw mm. how sort of emblematic that is of the fractions between the club and the fans and yeah it, it all feels like a very episode and of course all this clouds the fact that on the f- football side this was a bit of a disaster too you know Arsenal really needed to win this game and they, yeah. and they didn't do that so not a day I reflect on with Great fondness, to be yeah. honest with you. Um, the football obviously is a; it has been overshadowed by by a couple of controversies. Uh, of course, the Xhaka thing. There's also VAR, which played a key role yeah. in in yesterday's outcome. So we will talk about 
We will talk about the football. We will talk about VAR. But I think we do have to start with with what happened with Granit Xhaka. Just before we really get into it, you were there and we were texting back and forth a bit um, during the game. You you found it to be uh, an uncomfortable experience, which is which I think, and, and I, I saw Andrew Allen talk about this as well. That that the the enjoyment of going to football, the enjoyment of going to Arsenal is, I'm not going to say evaporated or eroding, but it, it's a it, it's a difficult place um, for fans to be at this moment in time. And even when I was over for the Villa game, there was this sort of air of, well, things aren't quite right. And on the day, it was a sort of extraordinary day because we, we beat them 3-2 with 10 men. But you could feel the undercurrent of... I'm not going to say unpleasantness, but just an air of discomfort among the fans. And I think that's what you felt yesterday. Yeah, I've just seen Andrew Allen's tweet as well. And it's it's very well put what he said. Uh, football isn't really supposed to be like this. And I, for me, it's not either. For me, it's not part of, you know, it didn't feel like part of an everyday match going experience. And I, I appreciate that people have different kind of cultural perspectives on that but the culture that I grew up in and the culture that I love with going to Arsenal you know it wasn't particularly evident in what happened yesterday and that's not to dismiss um, the reaction of the supporters and say that that's unjustified or and it's not to justify what Shaka did it's just to say that the whole episode was pretty ugly something that I don't want to see from my football club, even if I can understand the reasons that it happens. And something that really impacted upon my capacity to kind of enjoy the day. I mean, obviously the results are the sort of primary thing, but that really did take over and cloud things. And, you know, everyone's reaction will be have a, literally a different perspective on it because it's impossible to talk about what the crowd did as one generalised thing, you know, for all the people who Mm. initially cheered ironically when Shaka's number went up, you know, there were plenty of people who who didn't. After it all happened, it really did feel a bit like when you get a big injury at a football match and it kind of sucks people's uh, energy a little bit and it takes the focus. You know, everyone was talking about it. It Mm. immediately kind of superseded the scoreline in that respect. Um, But yeah, I I mean, obviously we're going to, I think we should probably start with it, shouldn't we? Yeah. We have already, I suppose. It is the defining thing, I suppose, despite everything else that went on. Yeah. My perspective, by the way, just in terms of what happened, because there are various sort of stories, and I'm not sure what the cameras showed. I've, you know, I haven't seen it. Yeah, give us, your, give us your in-ground experience yeah. of what happened, and I can tell you, you know, what it looked like from, from my perspective on TV. Yeah, so without the benefit of close, uh, you know, that Shaka was telling the fans to fuck off or anything like that, what what I saw was the number went up for Shaka and there, I was in the north bank in the corner, I was in block six and around me, but particularly kind of behind the dugout, actually, um, there were sort of ironic cheers and people as if to be like, you know, finally Shaka is coming off. It was very much the sense I got from that reaction mm. and it seemed to me that Shaka who you know has taken quite a lot of stick some of it justifiable um, was pretty despondent about that and pretty frustrated and sort of had his head down and 
I guess sulked his way off the pitch, trudged off the pitch. Then what happened is that with Arsenal two goals down and, and chasing a winner that they needed, uh, people responded to the trudging. His, taking his time, the trudging, exactly. And that's where the one uh, sort of cacophonous booing began. There had been a few boos when the board went up around me, but not many, you know, like a few from... A few people will probably boo almost everything that happens at the Emirates Stadium. So uh, it, it became broader at that point. And I think as his reaction kind of was aggressive or combative, it just escalated. So, you know, that walk from the centre circle to the edge of the pitch, in the course of that walk, it became mm. worse and worse. And I think, the, you know, the fact that he uh, took his shirt off, stormed down the tunnel did him no favours in that respect. It was quite unlike anything I've ever seen. You know, we all remember Emmanuel Abue being substituted 11 years ago and leaving the pitch in, I think, in tears, really. Mm. But this became worse because the player um, sort of <laughs> bit back and it was really... I kind of think that, you know, there's there's discussions we had of like, well, who is in the wrong here? Who started this? Blah, blah, blah. But I also think that kind of irrespective of that, it was just unpleasant. Like the whole thing start to finish, yeah. whoever's fault it was, was grim. You know? I, I, yeah, completely agree. I think it reflects... Um, I don't think it re re reflects particularly well on, on anybody to be honest. And when the captain of a football club is jeered off the pitch the way that he is, you know, it, it's it's not a good look for him. It's not a good look for the fans. It's not a good look for the club. Um, you know, from what I saw, obviously on TV, I don't think it differs too much um, right. from what you saw, that the, the jeers or the cheers went up when his name was announced. It wasn't so much the number. It was maybe the two things were, were timed perfectly, but, mm. but they were just sort of showing a replay of of something. I can't remember exactly what it was, but they were showing a replay and you can hear the stadium announcer saying, Arsenal substitution number 34, Granit Xhaka. And it's like, yeah, and you can hear the cheers. And that's not great. Um, and Xhaka obviously reacts to that. And I have to say, I don't think the reaction from Xhaka is entirely based on that alone yesterday. It feels like something that's been no. building Um for quite and, and equally, it's the same for the fans, isn't it? Yeah, think they were responding to his performance on the day. To I be mean, honest, yeah, look, I don't I, look. I thought he were, he could have done better for the goal. He should have done better for the goal. To be honest, you know, try and block the cross. But I, you know, I don't think he was. You know, there are days when Xhaka has a really um, poor day, and I don't think yesterday was particularly one of those. Um, you know, again. We spoke about this and we spoke about the... I think the frustration stems in, in no small part from the fact that Unai Emery, A, made him captain, which was an unpopular decision. B, keeps picking him. And then, you know, he he sort of um, deemed him expendable. I don't think there was anything particularly wrong with the substitution in itself. But I think when you're when you're, you're the captain of a club and you get taken off, it's, it's sort of embarrassing, a bit humiliating. Nobody likes to be substituted anyway. But then to have that um, to have that reaction, I think you have to you have to separate the two things. What what Granit Xhaka, the the professional footballer, should have done, and what Granit Xhaka, yeah. the man, the human being, the person with feelings, actually did. 
Um, and that's not to in any way defend Shaka's actions. I think he he sort of um, made the situation worse. You know, cupping his arm or ear at the fans, you know, mouthing fuck off a couple of times, taking a shirt off, throwing the armband, uh, going straight down the tunnel when we know the convention is for su- substituted players to take their place on the bench. You know, he didn't help himself, but I don't think you can just look at it and say, or look at it in, in isolation. It didn't happen in a vacuum. There's, there are reasons as to why this has got to the stage that it's got. And people are frustrated with Xhaka, the player. He keeps getting picked. Therefore, he becomes a lightning rod for that decision to keep picking him. And I do think um, Emery has a, Una Emery has, has played a part in, in letting this situation get to where it is, to the point where Xhaka has been or feels or or lost his rag to the extent that he did yesterday because he 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 definitely shouldn't have behaved the way that he did. Absolutely. He lost his head, which he is wont to do, uh, and that feeds into, I suppose, why people feel he might have been a bad choice as captain. Uh, and I'm someone who subscribes to that belief. I would not have picked him as captain. Uh, so, and I, and I think he'll pay for what he did probably with the armband I would be really uh, astonished if he wore the captain's armband for yeah, Arsenal again that's it isn't it I mean he can't remain as captain of the club having done what he's done however however you want to put it in context or however you want to I'm not, not saying make excuses for him but you know if you want to look at it from from every angle it still means that he cannot continue as Arsenal captain is he like the shortest will he become the shortest reigning Arsenal captain of all time? I guess so. I, William Gallas wasn't too long, was he? But uh, Longer than yeah. a couple of months, so... Yeah, for sure. Uh, so, you know, that's that's what... And I guess, weirdly, the benefit of having five captains is it's quite easy to just kind of move one out of that group, you know, mm. and... Uh, Mesut, Ozil is, Mesut Ozil is captain number four now. Um... <laughs> Yeah, I don't think he'll be taking it over. Yeah, from look, I, I don't think as well that the the way that Emery handled the captaincy situation helped Shaka either, because it took him an age to make a decision which he should have made during the summer. As soon as Koscielny was going, he should have made a decision. Mm-hmm. And I think Emery was meek. I think he was indecisive. I think he kept, you know, kicking the can down the road, talking about, oh, yeah, we'll make a decision. We'll talk about that. Our five captains this, five captains that, you know. And I don't think that's helped either. Um, because, A, I think he made the wrong decision. But, B, when you take as much time as he did it rightly leads people to question whether or not he believes in the the choice that he's making or or the decision that he's making and i think this this sort of players vote thing coming out as well was something that he kind of hid behind to a certain extent um so i you know i this is there are many angles or many as, uh, aspects to to this situation with jacka what what do you what do you think of how we as fans should react to the captain of the club telling fans to fuck off or not necessarily telling fans to fuck off, but reacting in the way that he did. Because on the one hand, you can say it's wrong. He shouldn't do it. And I don't think anybody is saying anything different. But at the same time, if you're put in that position, 
and you're mm. getting pelters from everywhere, you know, are you not entitled to have a little go back? I mean, if you're going to dish it out, should you not be prepared to take a bit back? You know, like, you can think yeah. that Xhaka is wrong, which I do. I think he was wrong to do what he did. But I'm not, like, personally offended that he he just lost his rag. I, I, you know, I feel like sometimes we get a little bit... Maybe football fans get a bit precious about things like that. That it's okay yeah. for me to call you a fucking useless cunt, but if you if you bite back a little bit, it's like, ah, oh, how dare you? <laughs> yeah, I, I actually do agree. And I think, I guess it's predicated on the idea that we as fans pay our money and therefore that gives us the right to say whatever we want to whoever we want. And mm. they just have to take it. And I think, you know, obviously it's not appropriate because, you know, if if, if a player has to bite back at opposition fans, for example, that is uh, an offence because they're sort of inciting trouble potentially. So yeah. that is one thing. Um, but I, as a like basically what Granit Xhaka did within his role as a footballer and within his role as captain was wrong. What he did as a human being, as a guy who was put up with pelters for the last few months and probably before that, who, you know, had a kid, and so he's like a new dad under enormous strain, probably not sleeping very much, who is probably very frustrated with his coach, uh, with the fact that he's become a lightning rod for criticism that he really is aimed at Emery, uh, who probably is as frustrated as anybody else with the captaincy decision, how long it took, a weak choice, you know, it undermined his authority as captain before he was even appointed. What he did as a man in those circumstances is completely understandable, in my opinion. And I cannot sit here and say I would not do the same. You know, if you mm. were under that level of criticism, you know, it's it would take someone of a very saintly demeanour to quietly put their head down and go, oh, I suppose... I suppose I am terrible. I suppose you're right. And, you know, whatever you think of Shaka, there is something about him. I'm not his biggest fan. I wouldn't... There's something about him that enables him to kind of be durable against criticism. And I think it is that bit in his nature that says, well, I value myself. You know, he's the guy who will come out and speak to the press after every game and front up. And people might not like what he says, but he does front up. And I, and I, that is his nature. That is his nature. And I get it. Excusable as a captain, but as a person, I do get it. Mm. You said something interesting there, frustration with with his coach. Yeah. I thought that was interesting. And, and I think you mentioned something uh, about this to me last night when we were talking on, on text that, if you look at some of the things that Xhaka has said in recent weeks, and I, I wrote about this as well, is that I think there's implied criticism of Unai Emery in, in some of the things that Xhaka has said. Because if we have concerns as fans about the way that the team is set up, I think he has expressed those same concerns himself. Like the, the Watford game where he talked about 
how the team were scared and people gave him a hard time for that. And I can see if you just read that, you think, what the fuck are you on about? You know, Arsenal were scared. You're supposed to be the captain. You're supposed to be the leader. But I think he was talking about something wider than just the 45 minutes where we played really poorly uh, against Watford. I think he was talking about, you know, a feeling within the squad about what they're supposed to do, how they're supposed to be doing it. And that fear, that scared sounds like a timid way of talking about something. But I think he's talking about a lack of understanding that that when you go on the pitch and you don't quite know what it is you're supposed to be doing, you know, how often have you heard a, a manager or a player talk about, well, we played with fear? We, it's, you know, mm. it's not quite the handbrake, but it, it's there. So, uh, yeah, it. It could be a criticism of an implied conservatism, definitely. Yeah, and I and I think there are lots of things to criticise Shaka for. I didn't think his use of a word in his second language in an interview he's just come off the pitch, you know, and he hasn't really thought about before. I thought that was a strange stick to beat him with, um, but but yeah, I think that you know. <laughs> There are things that he said in interviews that suggest that he's not happy with the way the team has been playing, the way the team's been going. And he is not blind to the fact that he has become a target for criticism, A, by being in a midfield that isn't functional, Mm -hmm. B, by being appointed as captain by a manager in a situation where clearly fan sentiment was against that decision. I mean... He has absolutely been hung out to dry, yeah. in my opinion. And the delay in making that announcement only, you know, made that that um, decision go down worse with fans. A- absolutely. You know, if 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 Koscielny had gone and on the next day they'd said, right, Koscielny's gone, Granit Xhaka was vice, he's now captain, uh, on we go with the season, I, I do not think it would have been nearly as much of a talking point. No, I don't think so either. Has been. I don't think so. And I mean it wouldn't have been because you deal with it there and then you don't you don't um leave the wound festering away and keep poking at it and say well we'll announce our captain next week. No, it'll be the week after. No, next week. Next week, you know, um yeah, it was a badly managed situation. It was a badly managed situation and I think there was genuine uncertainty. You know, I don't think Granite Shaka was even uh, the clear choice as, no, as first choice for the captaincy from when Koscielny left. I think I think other candidates were kind of sounded out potentially. So it, it was a, a really mismanaged situation by Emery. Mm. Um, but yeah, and I think, you know, it, we can go back and forth and round in circles on this because I know people will be listening and thinking, well, this sounds like a very sort of, like a defence of Granite Shack enough that in that situation as an Arsenal football player, as captain of the club, he does not have a right to reply there. He cannot respond in the way he did and actually his actions by walking slowly off the pitch rather than sprinting off were, you could argue, sort of directly negatively to the team. Like that, you know, So that is... Yeah. That's inexcusable. But... I feel. I also feel for him as a person. I do feel for him in that scenario. Yeah, I mean, we can um, all see. Because what, I, I go on. Sorry, sorry. I was just going to say. I never feel like Granite Shaka. I feel like his best frequently isn't good enough, but I rarely feel like he's not attempting to give his best. You know, I, I, I mm. do feel that he and, and everybody you speak to says, 
you know, he is a, a, a decent professional. Now, granted, he has lapses in concentration and moments of hot-headedness that do cost this team, but mm. I don't know. I, 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 I don't look at him and see someone who... Can't be arsed. Yeah. yeah, and also someone who deserves this vitriol. That I, I genuinely don't. Yeah, see that. you know, I think we can all look at it and 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 we can say with hindsight, you know, what he should have done. What he should have done as a professional is uh, ignore those cheers that came up and make his way off the pitch as quickly as possible to let the substitute get on and sit on the bench and feel unhappy and be unhappy because nobody. Yeah. Nobody out there listening to this, however they want to, you know, play it up, would take, um, would not take that to heart. You know, it's it's a very difficult situation. Um, but what we have to look at is what he did and what the repercussions yes. of that are and how it's going to impact yeah. um, on him. I think as as captain, that's it. I think we can say with some certainty that he can't remain as captain. And that's um, that's a difficult situation for a football club to deal with. Is there a way back for him as a player? Probably, but right now it it, it feels a bit too raw to talk about it. But I think we have to look at the wider repercussions of this as well. That Shaka, whether he's the most popular player among fans or not, is a popular guy within the Arsenal dressing room. He is the guy that most people voted for to be captain. And he's their friend. He's their teammate. And I think it's... I have to say, I think, you know, what's happened over the last little while is is really... I think it's quite damaging for the club to be where we are right at this moment in time where... The manager, the situation with the manager, there's this going on with the captain. Um, you know, we're we're struggling. How, how the fuck are we here? Andrew? Well, this like, is—it's uh, so fast because yeah. you think about the summer and the fact that people, like quite generously, many people drew a line between the end of last season and the start of this season. They they were mm. willing to overlook how bad that was. And there was actual genuine goodwill because of what we did in the transfer market. And we're three weeks in. The captaincy situation is a disaster. The manager has lost the fans. There's no mm. no question about that. Not, not all of them, but a vast majority of them, or certainly a significant majority of the fans. Um, we, we feel like a club in crisis. And it's only three months into the new season and it's happened so quickly that I'm sort of worried or afraid of, of like what's next how much worse can it get because I wasn't expecting to be here in October were you no way no way it's fast and I I think you know you you touched on it there but isn't this what trauma does you know when you go through something bad like last season with the way we failed to make the top four and then the diabolical Europa League final and that's not appropriately dealt with at the time I guess it just bubbles below the surface and what we are experiencing now is actually the fallout from that mm. which kind of never really 
dealt with, you know, to sort of continue the therapeutic analogy. Because we had the Europa League final on the horizon, when we didn't make top four, there was very much a sense of, well, push it down, push it down. And then, you know, when we made signings in the summer uh, and KSC told us the right things, it got pushed down again, you know, all the, the tobacco. And you push something down long enough and it's going to blow, right? It's going it's yeah. to create a problem for you. And I do think, and I think you might have warned about it at the time that you felt that, you know, there would be some sort of outpouring consequently from that. And I think we're in the midst of it. Um, but so worrying, I agree. It's really worrying to see, you know, I mean, we've all seen, I guess this morning, the pictures of Lucas Torreira upset on the sidelines about what happened with Granite Xhaka. And I think uh, three players went to Xhaka's house last night to console him, talk to him. I guess what his his reaction said was that he feels a distance from the fans. And I think there is a risk here that there's a bit of a rift, however brief or however, you know, tenuous it might be, a slight rift, a slight mm. divide, the club, the players and the supporters. And that is a... Uh, really unhealthy thing for any football club. Yes. I mean, look, if if you want to dismiss Xhaka and what he did and draw a red line under his Arsenal career, that's fine. If you want to look at it from the other side, that's also fine. But I think you have to look at it from... You have to look at the bigger picture and what it means for, for this squad of players. And, you know, they, they, they've seen their captain get that kind of a treatment and you can be sure that some of them will be thinking well what if it's me next what if I play badly and I become exactly you know it's really really unhealthy it is really unhealthy and I don't want to point fingers or say this is just because of toxic fans obviously there are many many factors um, that have led us to this situation and have led this this um, eruption of ill feeling because it's not just about Xhaka. It isn't just about Xhaka. You know, it, it would be completely wrong to say it's just about Xhaka and, you know, Xhaka goes away, all the problems get solved. That's not it. There's a really unhealthy situation festering away at Arsenal Football Club right now. And I think the club have got to do something to, to make things better. I mean... It's on fire. It's on fucking fire. Yeah. Yeah, it's broken cannons time, as I said to you last night. It it really is. And it's, uh, you know, I I reflect on... It's it's been really interesting this week, actually, because when people have talked about Meza Ozil, the treatment of Meza Ozil, I've seen a lot of people invoke the idea of Arsenal as classy operators and ask whether we are whether we are still meeting those standards. And when you think about this scene out in front of cameras, you know, beamed around the world, what it does for the image of Arsenal Football Club is very damaging. Um, And I also feel that as fans, and I know that people think I'm a bit of a sanctimonious prat, um, (laughs) and I am, (laughs) but I do think that if we hold those values dear, 
And if we expect club officials, club players to uphold them, I also think that we have a responsibility as supporters to uphold and try at least our utmost to. And I think I think that that is key, to be honest. You know, Arsene Wenger said it himself. The values of this club, the real, the real custodians of them are the fans. You know, people come and go. We are the fans. And I do think that these incidents, you know, players having to close down fucking comment accounts or thinking that what they do on the pitch is going to lead to, you know, albeit a minority, treating them badly. I look at that and I go, that, you know, that is, that's not, for me what I identify with what Arsenal should be about. And it's caused introspection for me. I don't think that would be the worst thing if this incident made everybody at the club, players, fans, directors, just take a look at themselves and think, right, this institution that we care about, where is it going? Mm. Uh, and, and what is our role in terms of sort of safeguarding its future and what it represents? Um, I, I, and it, that what happened yesterday really brought that home to me, and yeah. uh, it's just not nice <laughs> to put it bluntly. No, it's not. It's really unpleasant, and it's one of those things that will go either one way or the other. That there's sort of a consolidation. People step back and look and think about what's happened and and deal with it, or it, it just continues. You know, but without I've some- got two. Go on. No, sorry, I was going to say, I've sort of got two thoughts on this. My first thought is that um, football moves fast and to a certain extent, this might all blow over. I mean, obviously there will be some repercussions for Shaka and he has to make some sort of formal apology, of course. If You know, like when you have, I don't know, if things are really stressful, let's say you're moving house mm. and you have <laughs> an argument with your wife and then... With time, you're like, well, you know, we were moving house. A lot was going on. And I do think that with a bit more distance, we might look at what happened against Crystal Palace. And, well, we're in a situation where, you know, the the manager was not a popular figure, was not doing a great job. You know, we needed the points. There were a lot of contributing factors Mm. to that moment. And football can forgive because football can be fickle. And I think, on the one hand, I think might kind of move on from it. And although Shaka will lose the captaincy, there might be a way back for him as a player. On the other hand, I also think it is worth not dwelling on it, but properly interrogating what happened because I feel like if we don't, this will happen again. And, it, it, you know, it will be another coach or another... The I feel like, you know... Pandora's box is open a little bit and yeah we need to close the lid yeah but yeah but does that not require somebody with the strength and conviction to you know to do that I think I think the the people that are running the football club uh, maybe it was good or not I don't know that Josh Kroenke was at the game yesterday he was he was Uh, Stan was over in London as well but he was at Wembley to watch the the Rams do what um, do what they do but but maybe it's a good thing that they were there um, and were able to witness firsthand what exactly went on and what is going on and and with an ability to speak to people to get their opinion on why 
it's gone mm. this way. I'd be really curious to know, you know, if the club or the people that are running the club, like, what do they, what do they think caused this? What do they think created that outburst towards Shaka? You know, what what are they going to do to put out the flames rather than fan the flames? You know, that there's got to be an awareness that that this is this has come not out of the blue by any means. No. Um, been building definitely, and that this is serious. This is not, you know, like you say, you're right. Football is fickle, and football can forgive. And you know, last week's headlines are are old news to a certain mm. extent. But this is a serious problem. This is a serious situation for the club. It's uh, a really unpleasant one. I, I, you know, not enjoying it one bit. Um, but I think it's part of a bigger picture. I think it's part of a wider malaise that people just aren't enjoying what's happening at Arsenal right now. And ultimately, it's down to... Oh, God. Is it ultimately down to what's happening on the pitch? Maybe not ultimately, but I think that's playing a very, very big part in what's going on, that there is no faith in what's happening on the pitch and the way that we play football, there's so little faith that that everything else becomes bigger and more unpleasant and more noxious and more toxic. I mean, this is unbelievable. It's just, I mean, going back to how quickly th- this has happened, it's unbelievable that we're three months into the new season and we're having conversations like this after an incident like the one we witnessed yesterday. Like, if it happened yeah. at another club, you'd be breaking your whole laughing. Well, that's, I guess, what is most troubling about it. Is that's, that this really, feels, that's really sad, isn't it? I feel yeah, this, very sad about that. This feels like uh, something you would see happen elsewhere and think, God, thank fuck. <laughs> yeah. And, um, you know, you think of Spurs, you think of Chelsea, or wherever it might be, and somewhere where you just go, that is a club in a diabolical mess and... You look at where we are and you feel better, and it's not that now. We are, you know, we are in those waters, and uh, yeah, it's. It, I mean, it's a. I think it is a bigger thing than Arsenal. I think it, it is a bit of a sort of a shift in fan culture that is wider than that. But we are, we do seem in particularly uh, bad shape at the moment, mm. and. Uh, yeah, it is a big thing. It is a big thing, and it is something that I hope can be fixed. I mean, a lot of it is on the coach. You know, we've talked about Shaka a lot, and we've kind of intimated, well, look, the coach hasn't helped him. And I think a lot of this is about him. You know, fan, like you say, approaching a real consensus on Emery. And you don't want to generalise, and you don't want to speak for everybody, but... I don't see too many people this morning mounting a defence for mm. Emery. Emery. Um, yeah. I, th- I think I've got a question about that, which I'll ask you in part two. Okay. Um, so let's, you know, draw a line under this because we don't have an answer. We don't have a clear... Well, I mean, I think there is an answer in order to make things better, um, but that might come back to 
the question that I'm, I'm going to ask in part two. So let's talk a little bit about, uh, about the football, about the performance. And that in itself was, was worrying because 2-0 up at home against a mid-table team. Yeah. You give yourselves... Uh, an amazing platform to go on and and win a game. 2-0 up inside 10 minutes at home. Both your central defenders have scored from set pieces uh, and that turned out to be probably our most dangerous um, weapon, if you like. We we didn't really create a great deal from open play again. Our our, our striker, our main striker, Aubameyang, was was uh, peripheral on the left hand side. Lacazette was more involved. I thought there were some nice things about what what Pepe did, but overall a, a poor performance. And ultimately, we've thrown away a, a, a two goal lead. Um, I don't know that there's much need to talk about the goals that we scored. Socrates and Luis you know, got their goals um, smart and alert in the penalty area. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about theirs. Um, the penalty, for you a penalty or? Yes, I, I, I mean, I must say I was behind that goal. Yeah. And when the referee blew for the dive, there was kind of incredulity all around <laughs> me. We were, there was all that sense of like, bloody hell, we got away with one there. But the VAR exists and uh, yes, we we didn't get away with it at all. I suppose mm. if you were a Crystal Palace fan or Crystal Palace manager, you'd look at Wilfred Zaha, who's won more penalties since he returned to the Premier League than any other player, bar Jamie Vardy, up against Callum Chambers at right back and think, we might get some in here. True. I mean, when I was watching it in real time, I went, ah, oh, fuck, shit, that's a penalty. Yeah. And yeah. then I was very surprised. I was really surprised when he pulled out the yellow card. What's the I, I they they didn't show this necessarily on TV and I can't I don't know if you uh, noticed it, but what's the what's the convention for the referee now that he's booked a player awarded a penalty oh. and yeah, he, and then he, he waves to- the yellow card again. He does like a weird little thing where he gets the and shows it again and then makes like a but not gesture with his hands. <laughs> right. Like a sort of cancel gesture. So, yeah, he has to kind of um, illustrate to the supporters that he's undoing it. But in doing so, he effectively shows a second yellow. It yeah. is confusing. It's a, it's a weird one because um, I had a question by email from Robert Miles who said, if Martin Atkinson hadn't booked Zaha and it just played on, would VAR have stopped the game and given the penalty or let it go as it wasn't a clear and obvious error? So if a player is booked for diving in this contact, you get a pen, but if he wasn't booked, it wouldn't have been a penalty. That's an interesting thought. It is interesting. I don't know the answer, but it does make you wonder if, in that case, are the referees almost incentivized to book the player for diving and call it, like they did mm. with Saka on Monday night, and then potentially it's... Reversed in the case of a penalty. Yeah, wasn't there a weird know. one as well? A bit maybe in the second half, where Zaha took the ball on. He was running towards our goal, and we got back at him, and he went over, and it looked a bit bit divey. Um, and he was looking for a free kick, and Martin Atkinson just sort of waved him back up on his feet. You know, he didn't give a free kick, but nor did he take out a yellow card again because I guess you know if you're going to book a player twice for diving. 
in the one game. Better it reflects. Be sure. Yeah, you got to be sure. It looks a little bit weird on you. Um, so, My favourite was was it Zaha who Gendouzi pulled down. That was an unbelievably enjoyable part of yeah. probably the only really enjoyable part the of only yesterday. <laughs> it was. Yeah. It was amazing. I agree. I loved it. I mean, it's uh, like you've been watching the Rugby World Cup. Yeah, there were a lot of tweets about that. I did enjoy. Um, I did enjoy Zaha's tweet. Did you see that? No. He sent out a tweet. Uh, it's a picture of Gendouzi as he's sort of hauling him down to the ground. And Zaha's tweet basically just says, NFL's at Wembley, man. Um, nice. <laughs> <laughs> which is good. But, I, you know, I again, I like that about Gendouzi. I like it. And, but you know what's interesting? I wonder what people would have said if Xhaka had made that kind of Very, <laughs> very good point. I mean, he did commit one in the first half, I think, where he just tugged a guy to the ground. Yeah. He'd run away. Um, and yeah, it's met somewhat less understandingly. It is, but it was it was a, a remarkable moment in a, a remarkable game. Their second goal, uh, as I said earlier, I don't think Shaka did enough to really stop the cross. Um, uh, this sort of trying to defend with your arms behind your back thing is—I don't know how you can do it properly. You know, I don't know how you can mm. keep your balance properly with your arms behind your back and. Um, it looked to me like he was more worried about the ball hitting his arm and potentially conceding a penalty than he was conceding the cross or letting the cross come in. It went over David Luiz and Ayu was there to, to head home. Do you see that stat? Bernd Leno, since he's joined, has faced 11 penalties. 11 penalties. And he made his debut for the club just over a year ago. That's insane. That is insane. It's kind of... Uh it is interesting as well, I suppose. You know, we, we, we kind of routinely made fun of Petr penalty, and now we're conceding even more and saving even less. I mean, it's kind of amazing. Yeah. Um, yeah, I suppose the advent of VAR this season partly explains that, but last season we must have shipped plenty of penalties too. Milojevic is, every time we play him, put a bet on him to score. I think he always scores a penalty against us, as far as I can tell. I did, I did remember um, them saying something on TV about how he scored uh, X number of goals against against yeah. Arsenal. Um, he doesn't really miss penalties, actually. In good penalty team, taker, that's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. That is for sure. We should, you know, stop giving him chances to score from, <laughs> that from would the be penalty good spot. If we could stop that happening. Um, yeah, it wasn't a good goal to concede the second one, I didn't think. I mean, Chambers was caught out. Shaka, arms behind his back or not. And then Louise, I don't know how aware he was, really, of where I was behind him. Not very, would be that my would guess. That would sound about right. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it, you know, it flies in the face of what Emery said last week about how we're defensively better and defensively more solid. We we absolutely are not. We might have conceded a couple of less goals in in a, in a few of the games, but I don't think there was any marked improvement in the way we defended. Um, our defensive record under him is is really really poor, and to be two goals up and then back to two two. Um, I suppose the one thing you would say about this game, if you were seeking a positive from it, is that this is one that we should have won rather than being one that we were lucky not to lose. I don't know that Palace had a clear chance to to make it 3-2, but we actually did make it 3-2 with seven minutes to go. Socrates slamming the ball home for his, what would have been his second goal of the game, and we had this absurd situation with VAR where the goal was 
disallowed, what, two minutes, three minutes later? Yeah. After everybody had finished celebrating and they're ready for kickoff and then all of a sudden the goal is, is disallowed. What was your experience of that like in the stadium because I can tell you that even on TV where we have the commentator who's obviously got a bit of a feed who's got some like we we were told on commentary 30 seconds maybe it was the penalty as well though yeah it was the penalty one when they went to VAR the commentator knew 30 seconds 20-30 seconds before the referee actually pointed to the spot Oh, really? Yeah, so it's weird. You're seeing these replays and the commentator saying, yeah, it's a penalty. We're hearing it's a penalty. So by the time that decision is communicated to the referee, um, there's another delay. And even on television, when you're sitting there at home, you know, the fire is going, you've got a beer beside you, it's lovely and comfortable. It's still terrible. So what's it like in the stadium when you're waiting on those decisions to be made? So this was my first sort of real experience of some big VAR decisions as a fan without any access to, uh, you know, a monitor. And I have to say, it just feels like the current implementation of it is yet another case of match-going fans effectively being taken for granted. They are not the Premier League cares about. I think there's loads of evidence of that when you look at the way fixtures are organised. Um, and the current manifestation of VAR is yet another way in which that's the case. Because, what you know, with that Socrates goal, for example, we had no idea what was going on. They were lining up to take the kickoff. The, the referee paused the game. The screen came up checking the goal. But, of course, we don't have the benefit of... I think it's something maybe they should consider looking at, although... I, I appreciate there is a danger in that too, but at least then fans understand the decision that's being taken. Without the benefit of that, you are just stood for three minutes while the atmosphere completely dies. Mm. You know, there's no nothing you can do really to keep the atmosphere going. If Arsenal had been an equaliser and had given us loads of momentum or something like that, it just sucks the life out of the ground, Yeah, that whole process, um, which I think is really tragic. Every celebration you see tempered by people looking at officials, you know, wondering if it's a goal. And I know some fans don't care about it, but for me, that aim, and it is taking some of the life out of it. And yeah, I, I, my personal opinion is that I, I didn't have a huge problem with the way things were done before. I, I would, given the option, take the rough with the smooth. Uh, you know, some decisions... You'll get some, you won't. Look at this game. We wouldn't have had a penalty awarded on Wilfred Zaha. We would have had a goal stand, you know. So yeah. it's not always bad for Arsenal. In fact, as a big club, we probably benefit more from refereeing mistakes than a lot of other teams. Yeah. Um, so maybe that's why I would say, well, look, I just would roll the dice and, and stick mm. with it. But yeah, the current way it is, is for a match going fan. And I know in the broader context of the Premier League, it's only 60,000 people. But when we talk about, you know, Arsenal looking after what Arsenal is supposed to be about, I would like to see, you know, the desires of those 60,000 people reflected a bit better. Well, I mean, yeah, that that ultimately is, is where it is, whether it's at Arsenal or any other stadium in the Premier League or whatever league you support. The, the technologies that you implement should be... Um, designed first and foremost with 
an understanding of how they're going to impact the fans inside the stadium because they are the most important fans, you know, when it comes to to a game. I'm not saying they're better fans or anything like that, but everybody watching on TV yesterday, every Arsenal fan watching on TV, wherever they were in the world, will quite happily swap places, you know, with somebody who was inside that stadium because that's what football is about. It's about going to the game. And I think that the decisions that are being made are being made more in mind uh, of the TV audience than they are with what's happening inside the ground. Um, and that's completely wrong. And what it's doing is it's damaging the game. It's damaging the way that fans feel about the game. It's damaging the way that fans connect with the game the key moments of football the bits that give you the joy or the pleasure or the the heartbreak all of a sudden they're being they're being diluted by mm. this technology which even if it were getting all the things right would give you cause for concern but when it got it as wrong as it did yesterday you have to ask what is the point what is the point in losing all of that if you're not going to get decisions right and that Callum Chambers decision the the initially when the when that passage of play happened Chambers went down and the, the commentator said something like oh Arsenal are shouting for a penalty and then Socrates scored and everyone went mental because you yeah. think it's a goal nobody for one second had even considered the idea that Callum Chambers with three Crystal Palace players around him was the one who had committed a foul. Like, I, it's it's unbelievable. Yeah. Like, he, he didn't commit a foul. And I don't know what that official saw. And here's the worst thing for me, and it's not to make it personal about this guy, but apparently this is somebody who has never refereed a Premier League game in their life. And there's a breakdown here. A, that that guy can make a decision that ultimately cost us three points. But I think the other thing we have to look at here is why did Martin Atkinson not go and look at the monitor, which is there on the side of the pitch, which he can do. So rather than standing around like a fucking spare prick waiting for somebody to talk to him in his ear, why does he not go to the center circle, have a look at that incident? And I guarantee you, as poor as Martin Atkinson is, he would have looked at that and given Arsenal a goal because there is no foul by Callum Chambers. Whoever decided there was a foul has either invented it or has got fucking cataracts because he Mm. saw something that nobody else, nobody else saw. It's terrible. Yeah, it, it 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 is bizarre, and like you say, I don't think it feels like it's providing justice, which is essentially the only cause for it to be there. Um, it, it did seem to be as we had a directive this week, you know, that VAR was going to overturn some decisions, having sort of refrained from doing so, so much so that it attracted attention. Mm. It seems like this weekend there was a bit of a shift in policy on VAR, and Arsenal were potentially victims of it in this scenario. Uh, Look, I don't see, I don't realistically foresee a situation where they go, do you know what? I know we've spent millions of pounds on this, but it's not really worked. Um, So it's desperately important they improve the implementation of Mm. it and the process of it. And I mean that in terms of the decisions they review, referee reviews them. Um, I... I don't understand their reluctance to have the referee look at a monitor. Uh, I feel like in the World Cup, that worked pretty effectively, to be honest. Yeah. 
and it at least meant that you knew you knew what was happening yeah yeah who was responsible and i feel like replays of the incidents within the ground maybe are worth trialing um because you know i i think it I think it just keeps fans in the know about what's actually going on at the game they've paid to watch. Mm. So yeah, I, I'm I've always been sceptical, uh, and I've always suspected that even if it might be the right thing to do in inverted commas, that it would detract from the match-going experience. And yesterday really confirmed some of those doubts mm. in my mind. So look, not a good day for VAR. Not a good day for Arsenal, not a good day for Granit Xhaka, not a good day for Unai Emery. Um, not a good day all round. Two points dropped after dropping two points, or three points rather, against Sheffield United. Um, and we've got an interesting week ahead because we've got Liverpool in the Carabao Cup. And then we've got, is it Wolves? It's Wolves, isn't it, at the weekend? Wolves at the Emirates Stadium on Saturday. Mm. Saturday, a game on Saturday. How rare. I know. How rare. Um, well, look, yeah, I, I don't know what more we can say about the the day other than it's a, a massive clusterfuck and it's, you know, it feels like taking a kick in the balls and then a kick in the teeth at the same time or just afterwards. I don't know. It's just, it's not... It's not a healthy situation. It's not a healthy club right now. And look, things can change very quickly in football. Things can look an awful lot brighter in a couple of weeks' time with a few results and a few performances um, under our belt. But it feels like we're we're struggling. We're really struggling to keep our heads above uh, above water at the moment. Yeah, it does. Mm. Um, Yeah, and now I'm in a position where I'm sort of really... (laughs) not looking forward uh, to the next Arsenal game I have to be honest with you you know there is that slight creeping sense of dread around mm. around matches at the moment so yeah we'll see what we get on Wednesday I suppose yeah well that's that's at Anfield as well so um, not feeling too optimistic not necessarily sudden transformation of fortunes no? not necessarily okay well look uh, let's leave part one there we do have some questions and we can deal with those in part two which is coming up right after this Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 
Welcome back to the Arsecast Extra. This is part two of the show where we answer the questions that you sent to us on Twitter at Gunnerblog and at Arsblog on the Arsblog Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash the Arsblog. Amidst the trauma, I forgot to post something on there today, so apologies to you guys. And of course, on the Arsblog Discord server, which you get access to if you're an Arsblog member on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Arsblog. Uh, James, you're here. You're going to sound slightly different because we had so many um, sound quality issues in the in the first period. I've got a sheet of paper here with about, I don't know, 30 little edits that I have to make before I can put part one out. So we've resorted to the nuclear option of Skype again. So uh, welcome back, mm-hmm. but just sounding different. Thanks. It is still me, I assure you. Yes, it is still you. Sorry to disappoint everyone. Yeah. <laughs> it's still me. <laughs> <laughs> Same me, different voice. Slightly different, but not too different. So we're here, and the questions, uh, you know, it's difficult to find too many questions that didn't deal a great deal with what we've spoken about in, in the first part of the show, because they're all, well, not all, but many of them revolving around the same incidents, Jacka, Emery, et cetera, et cetera. But I want to start um, with one from boom, boom, boom. Where is it here? Okay, it's from AFC Met at AFC Met on Twitter. Um, actually, yeah, no, I wasn't going to start with that one. I was going to start with a different one, but we might as well do this one. Now, what did you make of the eight options for manager after Wenger that David Ornstein listed out? Uh, do you have faith in our yeah. decision to pick a head coach to replace Unai Emery? Yeah, so the eight options were uh, Allegri, Arteta, Henri, Lopetegui, Ranić, Ralph Ranić, Jorge Sampaoli, Patrick Vieira, and of course, Unai Emery. Mm. Um, so what did I make of it? I mean, I suppose some of it was more surprising than others. You know, we knew Allegri was in the mix. We knew Arteta was in the mix. I think we knew Vieira and Omri had been approached or interviewed in some capacity. Ralph Ranić doesn't surprise me to see him on that list. He's very well thought of. Um, Experienced. More, yes. And maybe more of a, almost a sort of technical director guy these days than a than a coach, I think. But Jorge Sampaoli and Lopetegui were slightly surprising inclusions. You know, we hadn't heard a huge amount about them being linked with the job. Um, what's my reaction to it? Well, I think it is interesting to know who was in the mix, but I also always think, well, this is principally Ivan Gazidis's list. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so were we in that situation again? I'm not sure necessarily that means those names would be back on the table. No, I don't think they would be. Um, yeah. I don't know what to make yeah. of that list either. I mean, look, Arteta, Henri, Vieira. Vieira, I get much more than, than Henri. Um, Lopetegui, was he, he'd just come off the, or he was, he was currently manager of Spain at that point, was he? I think he was about to become Spain. He became Spain manager in, oh, you're right. Yeah. He just was finishing at Spain in in 2018. So he went to Real Madrid that summer, uh, where it didn't work out for him, of course. Um, but he had been with Spain for two years uh, and previously been with Porter. If you had to pick one of those names right now, I'm putting a, a, a metaphorical gun to your head. Yeah. If you had yeah. to pick one of those names right now to be the uh, the new Arsenal manager, should we decide to part company with, with Unai Emery, who would it be? Uh, I think 
I would, I think I would go for Mikel Arteta personally. Right. If it was still an option. I, I, I'll tell you why. I just feel like having someone who is a an ex-player might do something to kind of unite the fan base. And I think his experiences working with Pep Guardiola surely would prove beneficial. You know, I really like the type of football Guardiola plays. I think mm. it suits what Arsenal envisage themselves to be. Uh, and while there's no guarantee Arteta is going to try to replicate that, I think it's a fair assumption that his ideas about football won't be dramatically different. Um, so I'd probably just go for him and then I'd probably have Patrick Vieira in second place. What about you? Uh, yeah, I think from a footballing point of view, even though we've got no real frame of reference because he hasn't done it, I, I would tend to agree with you with with Arteta. I mean, there's part of me that looks at someone like Allegri and his track record and, and the fact that he can, you know, he can, uh, he can point to that track record. The other part of me thinks like he was at Juventus. Of course, he's going to win lots of mm. stuff. Uh, and I'm not sure that if we're pining for... Guardiola-esque football, Allegri is the guy to bring in. Um, Vieira, I mean, it's not going particularly well for for Nice, is it, in Liga at the moment? Um, where are they? I have in the to table? confess, I don't know. Um, I, I think last season he had a decent enough So year, they're, they're but... 15th at the moment. Well, that isn't um, the best. Played 11, won four, drawn one, lost six with a goal difference of minus five. So, you mm. know, that's not that promising. Um, no. Yeah. So, I mean, look, I, I agree with you, though. I think that if there was a list put together right now, it would be a different list than that, which is normal because, you know, it's it's 18 months on and some people are available, some people aren't. Um, the, the other question, though, I was going to ask you was... Uh, it's from Alex, who's at AFC underscore Gunner 26. And he says, in light of the David Ornstein article that came out today, what do you make of the club's hierarchy's belief in Emery? Are they again going to ignore the unrest of the fans? It feels like we're on a knife's edge, ready to plunge into endless self-destruction and meltdowns. And for people who haven't read it or people who aren't aware of it, David Ornstein um, said that there is still faith in Unai Emery. He met with Josh Kroenke after the game last night. They are willing to give him more time, perhaps even until the end of the season, uh, before they consider making a change. What is your what is your read on that? I mean, is it do you take it at face value? I'm not um, trying to dispute uh, David's information or his sources or anything like that. But you know, do you take that at face value? Or is it kind of hinting on the vote of confidence uh, area of things when it comes to a manager? I mean, certainly the information coming out of the club last night was that it was business as usual. Um, but I do see what you're saying. They are inclined to say that. And a manager is <laughs> a manager is safe until he's not, right? And it, it yeah. can change very, very quickly. There's nothing to stop anybody at the club briefing the idea that, you know, things are secure, you know, you know, he's not going anywhere. As soon as they decide that's not the case, that can all change very fast indeed. I, I think we can take it as read, though, that it means nothing immediate is going to happen. Mm. And I confess, I walked out of the Emirates Stadium last night and I thought that might be it for Unai. I, I, re I really did have that reaction. And I know 
as a fan, sometimes you have an emotional response to a game that can be a bit exaggerated. But just seeing the amount of dissent in the stands, uh, you know, firstly, at everything that surrounds Shaka, the Meza Ozil song being sung pretty heartily by big numbers in that ground felt like open season really on the on the manager's authority and i thought uh, especially with Josh Kroenke being there to witness that i'm not sure how much of that kse will tolerate you know or how much they they can allow that to uh, yeah. fester well i think that's a, you make a really interesting point there in the sense that a lot of times people will say well there is a an overly negative reaction on social media and and on fan channels, um, you know, fan communities, et cetera, et cetera. And that's true to an extent. I, I think it is, you know, and in the in the aftermath of a game, you know, people say things and they react to things in a very visceral way. And maybe in the cold mm. light of day, they might not. But, you know, you're you're talking about this unrest being evident within the stadium within the stadium itself. And, and when it gets to that point, it really isn't healthy. And I think on the one hand, you want your club to show a united front. You want togetherness. You want consolidation. You want teamwork and, and all of those things. Um, there was a there was a, a bit in the, the piece that David wrote, which I, I found a little bit worrying, which was that they were considering giving Unai Emery a new deal towards the end of last season. Mm. And when you mm. look at how badly last season ended, now I'm I'm speculating and, and guessing, of course, but I guess it was before the point where it just fell apart and we didn't finish in the top four and we got spanked in a European final. I'm, it has to have been before that. Maybe it was those things which made them reconsider what, um, what they were going to do with Emery. But I, I feel like there's perhaps a little bit of remove between the the perception that we have as fans to the job that Emery is doing and what the club feel he's doing or the people running the club feel he's doing. I, I think they're probably, maybe rightly, a bit more detached Whereas our reactions are very emotional, they obviously have yes. to make decisions. But I, I absolutely, I'm not encouraged by the idea that a they thought he was doing such a good job that they were going to give him a new deal, and b I'm definitely not encouraged by this by the idea that after the week we've had, after everything that they've seen, after the way everything blew up at the Emirates yesterday, that they're still insisting that they have a lot of faith in what this guy is doing. Because frankly, I don't know how. Yeah, I mean, I remember when that talk of a new deal surfaced last season. I think a lot of it was around when we went to Wembley, maybe, and we got, did we win or we drew, maybe, uh, against Spurs? Uh, yeah, we um, drew. Remember, way, Aubameyang like missed the penalty. Performance. That's it. And we put ourselves in, at that point, in a, a pretty strong position for the top four. And there was talk of, it, oh, if we get it, there might potentially be an extension for Emery or if he wins a trophy. I mean, I don't think that could possibly have been a serious consideration after the way the season ended. And I, I don't know, but, you know, my hope is, you know, when Raul comes out during the international break and says, we're happy with Unai, we're happy with the job he's doing. I mean, honestly, I don't know what people 
expect he, he almost can't say anything else really without throwing the guy under the bus which is not something the club are, are going to do yeah. so yeah. I think what they say publicly and what they may privately feel are different you know what I mean yeah, I don't I mean, think he can go we're not sure actually um, mm, but they could say nothing the sack. <laughs> they could say nothing though as well that's that's another option that is another option in a fans forum, though, can he just say nothing when he's asked? Well, not in, okay, not, not in a fans forum, but obviously there's been a, you know, whoever David spoke to um, yeah. at the club has has provided that information in the full knowledge that it's going to go public and that David is a very uh, trusted source for Arsenal information and is hugely credible. So the things that he says are, are yeah, they carry a lot of weight. Yeah. So when they put that message out there, they I could mean, just easily just not like Arsenal board remain tight lipped over Unai Emery's future. I don't know. Do you not think there's the possibility that if you do that, you you might actually end up run the risk, running the risk of sort of fanning the flames of discontent almost um, more than they already are when 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 this is what we're told after the week that we've had after the the shambles that we've seen on the pitch at, at Sheffield United and, and the incident with Xhaka, which, you know, as we spoke about in part one, is part of a wider a wider malaise. You know, I think saying, oh, this guy that's setting fire to everything, we think he's doing a really good job at setting fire to everything. Yeah, I, I, I do understand what you're saying, mm-hmm. but there's there's no board that acts in the way that you're asking them to really I don't think mm. I think that I think they're just doing what boards do isn't it like you know that's why the vote of confidence is kind of dreaded I guess I guess even that comment feeling the need to comment on it is and it is a sort of admittance of that there is a problem here um and I think there's a reason that that people uh, talk in that way and put those statements out. I don't, I don't, um, I, I don't, what do I, what can I say? It's tricky. I, I mean, it could, it could work either way. Like there were some people who will say, well, just the, the way to solve fan discontent is to sack Emery. That's what some people will say the solution is. Uh, I think it's a solution, but I don't think it will solve all Arsenal's problems. Do you not feel, though, we're we're at a point where there is such a distinct lack of unity, togetherness, mm-hmm. harmony, whatever you want to call it, that, that it is situations like this which really dictate big decisions, that yeah. we can't move forward as a football club if we retain a manager in whom many fans have little to no faith. They've got no connection. They've got no personal connection to him. We have a manager who who just does not connect with fans, who doesn't seem to connect with his team. Again, another part of David's piece was how there was some dressing room unrest because of our lack of footballing identity, uh, clear ideas about how we're supposed to play the game, our tactical approaches and all that sort of mm-hmm. stuff, you know, caveated with the, the, the one, but of course, you know, there are still many players who believe in Unai Emery, but you know, if it's starting in the dressing room and if it's already in the stands and if it's, 
if it's outside the confines of the stadium in terms of the fan base, how are you going to move forward without making what is a difficult decision? I'm not suggesting it's easy to sack a manager. Uh, and certainly it's not easy to uh, to find the right guy to replace him. But But a lot of times at football clubs, it is a matter of trial and error until you get that right guy, that you've got to make a decision and it might turn out to be the wrong decision. And I think Unai Emery, I mean, we can't say how anybody else would have turned out, but based on the performances, I think Unai Emery is a decision that we, we've kind of got wrong as a football club. So therefore, we have to, we have to, um, we have to try and make a better decision next time. I don't know how, I just don't know how you bring about the things that you need for a football club to thrive while there's no belief whatsoever in the man whose who's job is to do that. I don't know how you can do it. Uh, I, I don't think you can either. And I think that, you know, Unai Emery probably sh- should go, to be honest, at this point. Um, but I suspect those who run the club feel, uh, what, how can I put it? I suspect they feel that they want to be certain they're making a decision that is not governed by emotion. And they may be wrong in in sort of the amount of rope that they're giving Unai Emery. Mm. Uh, but that must be the driver for them. I mean, I, I, I agree that Unai Emery should go and I think it will improve things for a bit. But I think there is a bigger thing for me, which is that I, I kind of feel like the speed at which this has happened, and I know people say, well, 15 months or whatever it is, or 18 months, that's not huge speed, but the speed at which the level of discontent is there, to me, it makes me concerned that um, kind of irrespective of what follows, this will come again. Okay, but it... I have to say, I yeah. don't think that's... Okay, but, you know, are we not just now a club that's in that cycle of of managerial head coach change like so many football clubs are? Because that yes, is that are. is how football clubs operate. And I think in, in some ways we're kind of clinging to this idea that we can get another, another 15, 20-year guy in. And, you know, if you could find a guy that was successful for 15, 20 years, brilliant. But the reality is we're, we're not that and we're, not, we're probably not going to find that guy and we're going to have to operate like, like other football clubs operate. And also, you know, I'll go back to this in that if the, if the next guy who comes in gets us to the brink of the top four in his first season and then blows it terribly and then loses a European final then I would expect um, sentiment to be pretty similar to, to the way it is now. And the summer that we had, it, it, I hate using the, the phrase papered over the cracks, um, but it did apply a kind of a, a bandage to that wound, and that bandage has now been well and truly ripped off. Mm. So yeah, as we discussed in part one. I, I, I agree with that. I, I, I think you're right. We are in a different culture now where we will burn through managers quite quicker. And, and if they don't, uh, if they don't deliver crucially, I mean, if the next manager comes in and does everything we want from him, then 
so be it. You know, mm. I, I uh, he he'll be indulged and he'll get more time. Uh, I, I just think Arsenal are a club that are not quite. How can I put it? I think even though. Ivan Gazidis is gone, and even though the club is run by new people, we don't yet appear as a club ready to embrace that change, you know, and be like, well, we're just a club that gets rid of managers now. Because I think if we were, the change would be happening. Mm. But it's not. And uh, I'm a little bit surprised. I mean, I did say in the last podcast, I thought, you know, we would be, definitely be here until at least Christmas. But I also thought he'd beat Crystal Palace. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it. Uh, it's it's really difficult to predict. I mean, I have to say the Leicester match starts to loom very, very large, mm. um, especially in the light of, you know, their result this weekend. You know, they are flying at the moment. We play them in our next but one Premier League game. And if there's a significant gap in performance between those two teams, you know, I think then, I mean, it it becomes difficult to justify keeping Unai Emery at that point. Yeah. Well, you know. I think we're there already, to be honest. But I, Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, th- I think that's fair. I think I think it's very difficult to justify... Sorry, I think it's, it's very possible to justify sacking him right now. What I'm saying is it becomes very difficult to argue any sort of case yeah. to alternative after the Leicester match. Um, um, right. But, I, I, yeah. They're obviously not going to do it, are they? So, you know, we w- David wouldn't have the information he has if there was going to be an announcement today or tomorrow. Well, yeah, that's true. That's true, I guess. So we muddle on. We muddle on. And speaking of muddling on, do you have a question? Yes, uh, it's on a similar subject, actually. Dean Van Goyen says, if Emery is sacked in the near future, should the new manager be under the same pressure to qualify for the ch- Champions League this season or do Arsenal's targets get pushed back 12 months no I mean is that not part of why you make the change I think so yeah. part of why you make the change so. is to ensure that you finish in the Champions League that would be a key mm. driver to that that decision like if you if they if you thought Unai Emery was going to get Arsenal into the top four as bad as it is you'd stick with him if you really believed that he was going to do that yeah it, it's yeah. when it's when that I becomes uh, when that becomes more and more difficult or more and more unlikely that you have to make the change and you make the change to ensure or to give yourselves the best chance of that happening that's that's why you make the change so no the 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 priorities or the the expectations for whoever comes in do not change and you know if it's a few weeks down the line and we've lost a couple of more games it's a more difficult job. You make it a more difficult job the longer you leave it if this current form and this run of um, results continues. Mm. Yeah, I wholeheartedly agree. And actually, when you talk about new managers, um, you know, I said Mikel Arteta would kind of be my ideal name from that 2018 list. But I almost think uh, you might want to go for a more short-term appointment this season, someone who you just think can hit the ground running and churn out results and get you into that top four because I really do think it's of absolutely vital importance and, you know, it's a four-point gap now and if we lose more games, as we look want to do at the moment, that gap's only going to widen. It's become more and more difficult. What's the point bringing someone in when, you know, when it's the gap's too 10 big? points or 12 points or something like that. Yeah, exactly. when it's too late. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yep, yep. 
Um, okay. Here is a question. Uh, a lot of people asking this one. Um, Thomas, who's at Thomas Jevsik on Twitter. And he says, does the abuse from fans towards Xhaka and other players in the stadium, on social media, etc., make us l- a less attractive club to play for? And could it cast serious doubts on whether a player wants to join us? I mean, same question from George Dabrowski, who's at George Dabrow on Twitter. Do you think fan treatment of some players, um, Shaka Mustafi, Ozil, etc., will scare off potential future signings? That's that's the thing. You've got to, again, coming back to bigger issues and wider wider angles on all this, you've got to protect the reputation of the club as well with the decisions that you make. Yes, I well, I think, first of all, let's distinguish between when it comes to abuse between, you know, booing or ironically cheering a player and sending a death threat to their wife, you know, which has happened to Granite Shaka. So there is a distinction there. And uh, I don't want to be too, what's the word? hyperbolic I suppose and say that any dissent against a player is abuse and that you know we must no. sort of lord them as gods at all time of course not but would it make Arsenal less attractive place to be certainly I think the image of the club is not in a good place right now and you know what I don't worry so much about oh we won't be able to sign somebody because frankly as far as I'm concerned we've spent most of our money what I worry about is say someone like Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang or someone like Alexandre Lacazette, who we need to sign contracts in the next six months or so, I worry that they might look at what's unfolding and think, nah, I'm all right, actually. Yeah. Um... <laughs> and that's a bigger worry to me almost. I mean, you know, let's say Shaka's stripped of the armband. Who wants that? Who wants that? Uh, genuinely, I, I don't know if it takes a hell of a personality to say, OK, I'll put my head above the parapet. I'll be in the firing line and credit to them if when they do. But I could understand some reservations. Yeah, well, here's here's just a, a, a question that leads on from that it comes from. Uh, Ashish, who's at Arsenalism 13, he said, what are your thoughts on Lacazette liking a, a social media post? telling Shaka to fuck off and Emery to leave. That's not good, is it? I mean... No. I think... No. Uh, I think uh, I think Shaka and Lacazette had a, an exchange of words as Shaka left the field, where sort of I think Lacazette sort of sought to console him and Shaka slightly bit back. So I think, you know, there was a bit of friction between those guys. And uh, I think, uh, obviously, liking that, is kind of open dissent against the manager, particularly, uh, and obviously does not bode well. But I have to say, at the moment, I think Unai Emery's going to be gone before Christmas, so maybe that will assuage some of Lacazette's concerns. Mm. Yeah, I mean, one thing to point out is that very often players don't manage their own social media. Um, of course, I think in the case of Lacazette, though, he does. He does tend to post a lot of stuff and um, have the bants with Aubameyang and, and what have you. So at best, you would say it's an indiscreet like from somebody who's managing his social media. At worst, it's a player 
who must understand in this day and age how how um, ubiquitous social media is that it's going to get attention. Maybe it's deliberate. Mm. Maybe it's deliberate, but it's not a good look. That's for sure. Yeah. Uh, this is a similar theme, I guess, from Igor Fonseca on Twitter. Eagle says, at the end of the Wenger era, Arsenal fans were divided and toxic, but we had an excuse. He was there for too long, and as soon as he was gone, there was a feeling of reunion. Less than two years later, we are in the same place. Are we divided and toxic no matter what? No, because I think I think we've seen evidence that when people people can get behind things which which give them faith and hope and optimism, as we saw during the summer. Mm. So, look, I know it's really easy to get behind transfers. I know it's really easy to get behind, you know, spending lots of money and bringing in a player like Pepe and everyone obviously digs that. But I think in the 12 to 18 months, I think what's been lost a little bit is when Emery was appointed, it was a bit of a surprise, obviously, but there was real openness to him, to his ideas to what he said he was going to do and the job that he set out to try and do at Arsenal, right? Where we we looked at a manager and thought, okay, well, you know, he's tactically, uh, he's more tactically astute or more tactically based than Arsene Wenger. That's something we needed. That's a good thing. He's not afraid to make halftime changes. That's good. That's a good thing. You know, it's not as if, there wasn't support for Emery when he took over. Some people had doubts about whether he was the right man for the job or or to do it uh, at a club like Arsenal, where I, I think his mindset is more attuned with a with a smaller club, with a less ambitious club, and certainly with a less ambitious fan base. But I do think there was great support for him. In general, there yes, was really good support. And over the course of this 12 to 18 months, that has diminished and that's why we're divided and that's why it's toxic because the things he said he was going to do, he hasn't done. The things that the club said he was going to do, he hasn't done. I wrote a post um, over the weekend uh, on the blog and there were a couple of quotes um, about what was expected from Unai Emery and, and Stan Kroenke uh, says he he's going to build on the platform created by Arsene Wenger. No. Uh, Ivan Gazidis uh, said he plays an exciting, progressive style of football that fits Arsenal perfectly. No, he doesn't. And no, it doesn't. Mm. And Unai Emery acknowledged that Arsenal is known and loved throughout the world for its style of play. And he mm. has he has diminished that. Because, you know, I remember even sort of uh, you talk to somebody, you know, a taxi driver or something like that, uh, you know, when, when it was uh, at the end of the Wenger reign and they'd say, are you Wenger in or are you Wenger out? And, you know, you'd have the conversation. He'd say, Arsenal, you know, they play good football. They do play good football, but, you know, they have these problems, blah, 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 blah. And this was at a time where we weren't really playing good football. We didn't play great football under Arsene Wenger for, for a few years. Um, when it all started to get, you know, weird and muddled towards the end. But the previous years of excellent, exciting, attacking football were enough for that reputation to stay intact. That reputation is now dwindling by the day. The more, the more people see Arsenal play football, the more it's at odds with what Arsenal 
is supposed to be and what what I guess the board and the the directors when they made the appointment what they wanted Arsenal to be. So that's why I think we are where we are. You know, mm. people aren't blind to what's gone on and they're not blind to what's happening on the pitch. It comes back to what's happening on the pitch. So I don't think it's a case that we're toxic no matter what. I think it's a case that people have different levels of people will take a different amount of shit before they lose their reason. You know what I mean? So, you know, your, your patience threshold might be different from my patience threshold. And whereas I might say, this is not good enough. You might say, well, maybe we should give it a bit more time. And that's fair. I'm not saying that yeah. one thing is wrong than the other, but that's what's happened. And just more and more people are saying, this is not good enough. This is not good enough. And I think more and more people are coming around to that while there are still some people who say perhaps Emery might need more time. But that's all it is. For me, anyway, that's all it is. Uh, it's increasingly few people as well. I mean, the idea that we're divided, I don't necessarily subscribe to that. I mean, is it, yeah, know, isn't there seems di- to be a degree is, of consensus. Yeah, exactly. Isn't the dissent a sort of weird form of, of unity? In that so many people are coming together to say this is not this is not what it should be, even though you're saying something negative. I don't know you're if I agree of, with that because okay. I'm not saying okay. Yeah. Go on. I was just going to say I don't know if I agree with that because I think that where the where the dissent lies and where the division lies, I think is about how things are expressed okay, more than yeah. necessarily what what they say. Do okay. You, yeah. No, I agree you know with you I mean? there. I agree with you there. For example, not everyone. I think a lot of people agree that it would probably be good to change the manager now. I think it just the difference is believe is you know how people, you know, if you call him, if you're like, yeah, mate, I don't know, I don't know. It's just how that's expressed that's different. But I think the behaviour of the fans has changed, in my opinion, in the last five years. For example, we've had more ugly incidents as a supporter base than we did in the previous 15. And whatever you attribute that to, in from where I stand, there has been a shift. Right. Um, I think it's... But, um, you know, that's my, that's my perspective. I don't, you know, I can't, I can't, I'm not right. It's just the way I've seen it. Right. I, I think it is... Um, it's a societal issue because I don't think it's necessarily restricted to... Yeah, I agree. To football and the behaviour um, and the way that people are prepared to to speak and say things online, um, mm-hmm. whether it's from behind an egg Twitter account or whether they're putting themselves on camera or whatever it might be, people are prepared to say things that they, you know, it might just be that they were always prepared to say these things. They didn't have a platform to say them on. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe human Maybe. nature hasn't changed. Maybe yeah. the ability of humans to belch their opinions into the world has changed. I think that's I think that's true, and I'm aware of the irony of that, that we're sitting here on a podcast talking about it. But you know, um we're mm. we're not we're not dealing in uh we're not dealing in abuse here. We're not dealing in in the worst excesses of of online intercourse, if you like, um, to put it, you know, a better way, perhaps. <laughs> I think maybe you meant discourse. Intercourse is something else, mate. Yeah, 
I've enjoyed my <laughs> online intercourse with you every week, James, for quite, quite some time. <laughs> Uh, yeah, but we, that's when the mics when we turn the mics off yeah we stop recording um <laughs> yeah anyway uh let's ask it anyway it's from joe starkey who's at starkey joe okay and joe says should we start hastily erasing all the bad things we said about brendan rogers on twitter there's no getting away from it he is the <laughs> outstanding candidate now uh, yeah, look, we've loads of questions about Brendan Rodgers. Um, look, he's doing a very good job at Leicester. No doubt about it. Mm. I still think he's a dickhead, though. I still <laughs> think he's a dickhead. And maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm crazy. Maybe I'm too picky. But I kind of have a high bar when it comes to people who are employed by my football club. I don't get to choose. I don't get to choose. But I'd rather somebody who I like. And yeah, I just can't do it with Brendan. Just can't do it. I'm sorry. I know he did great things at Celtic. But, you know, there are, there are I suppose, um, reasons why you can be dominant in the, in the SPL. Of course, yeah. Um, without wanting to dismiss or uh, annoy any of our, our Scottish listeners, um, he's doing a very good job at Leicester. There's no doubt about that. I'm not disputing it. I just, I just, no. I just can't. I, I don't like him. I don't like his character. I think he's too, he just rubs me up the wrong way. So, mm. I mean, if it was a choice between him and Mourinho, of course, I would take Rogers, but then, yeah, it's sort of like a choice between having a sandwich from a vending machine or having your balls put into a mincer. Sure, I I, I completely understand that perspective. Um, for me, Mourinho is on another scale. You know, I couldn't really palate Mourinho. Also, I think it would feel wrong oh, it to is, me yeah, Rogers, I, uh, yeah Rogers, I think is a bit of a um risible figure but I I do happen to think he is a good coach and I do like how his teams play as a rule so I could probably square it with myself I think he would improve this Arsenal team mm. and I think I think I said as much in 2018 much to your absolute rage, probably at the time. I don't remember, but <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I'm more open to it. But I, I would ask the question: If it happened right now, do you want to see the season through with Leicester going the way they're going, or do you want to switch to Arsenal right now, midway through a season where you might finish above them and open up all sorts of options for yourself? I, I don't think it's a gimme. I don't think it's a gimme mm. to get Brandon Rodgers. No, but, I yeah. don't think so either. I mean. Look, he has shown his willingness to jump ship, in fairness. Yeah. Because he left yeah. Celtic at a time where they were just about to do something historic, I can't remember. Um, nine Let's in a row say, or 12 in a row. Restoring Arsenal to... Yeah. Restoring Arsenal to their former uh, powers would certainly appeal to his ego, though. Mm. You know? Yes. He'd love it. He would love to be, you know, sat in that chair. So... I don't think he could really resist it. But 
yeah, I don't know. I, I think he's. I think he would have to be a candidate for me. All right. Well, look, we'll see. We'll see what happens. Doesn't seem like yeah. anything's going to happen anyway. So um, no. Yeah, it's sort of a moot point. I, I don't know what more we can say about all of this. I've got to go as well. I've just realised. So that's convenient. Okay, that's good. I've got to do some little bits and pieces of editing on this. So let's call it a day. We can end our intercourse for the day, James. Um, we can have okay. more intercourse yeah. next week. Um, Maybe you're satisfied. Yeah, I've, I always am, darling. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, let's leave it there. We'll have an Arsecast on Friday, um, looking ahead to the Wolves game and looking back on the game against Liverpool in midweek. So plenty to talk about. Join us for that. Thank you as ever for listening. I'm sorry we couldn't have cheered you up, but, you know, we can only deal with what we've got to deal with. Um, hope you enjoyed it, enjoyed it all the same. We'll catch you on the next one. Bye-bye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.